Welcome to Art Speaks, a presentation of William King Museum of Art in Abingdon, Virginia. And we are here today representing William King, and our co-host today is Katie Edwards, who is the Curator of Fine and Decorative Arts at the museum, and our guest is Charles Goolsby, professor here at Emory & Henry, and the chair of the Visual and Performance Arts Division also an artist in his own right, and a member of the uh, William King Board of Trustees. So welcome, Charles. Our topic today is going to be primarily about the current exhibit at the museum, Bernini and the Roman Baroque. And Katie is the curator for that exhibit, so she's the appropriate person to be here. And Charles just got back from a visit to Bernini's homeland, and I'm sure he's going to be able to add some current gossip from Italy. So let's start out with um, Katie. What would you like to talk to Charles about? Charles, um, thank you for being with us. Uh, I have a few questions as a representative of the audience at the museum. Uh, these are things that have come up a couple of times during tours that I've been giving, um, or when people have been at the museum. And the biggest question that we've had regarding that show is why there are so many mythological paintings if everything was meant to be sort of about the Catholic Church. And that's something that kind of comes up a lot in this Roman Baroque period, um, and definitely something that people have been curious about during the show. Okay, well, first of all, I can't get very super specific about the works in the show. The, that's in Abingdon, but I can say that one of the purposes behind commissioning these paintings was some level of ethical or moral instruction. So um, when you when you see a mythological painting, that's just part of it. Another thing too is um, the Baroque period happened after the Italian Renaissance. So because the Italian Renaissance was all about this Neoplatonic humanism of recycling ideas throughout religion and throughout history. The um, popes and lots of cardinals and religious officials were very open, as well as the patrons who commissioned the works, they were very open to including mythological kinds of things with religious subjects. So when we look at something as traditional, and everybody knows it, the Sistine Chapel ceiling, you know, we have prophets up there from the Old Testament, but we also have the ancient sibyls who were, you know, basically prophets but before the time of Christianity. So that fusion is really not very unusual. That's really interesting. So I'm going to play the layman here, which I certainly am on this topic, but just for anyone in the audience that may not be familiar, uh, Bernini was a uh, famed painter, sculptor, architect uh, who lived in the early 1600s, born in Naples and, and did most of his work in Italy. And uh, he is the uh, inspiration for our exhibit at the museum. It's not all Bernini works, but it's people in his time and people that who he used as part of his architectural and decorative work. And I also read today something interesting, that he was also a, a playwright, that he would write satires and perform in them. So, so I, just, I just want to throw that in because that's, that's all I know. 
It's good that you bring that up. Um, all of the works in that exhibit are from the Palazzo Chigi, which is right outside of Rome. And the family, uh, the Chigi family, who hired Bernini basically to help um, reinvent and remodel an entire city, uh, and certainly their residents, their summer residents as well, all of the works in this show are from that collection. And so you see this idea, and Charles might be better to speak about this than me, of, of something very theatrical happening, something that is totally encompassing, and that's something that you can see throughout the exhibit, um, but also within a lot of Baroque architecture, that things are a whole experience. So you have in that show um, wall hangings, textiles, sculpture, as well as painting. And so Bernini was a good example of somebody that could deliver on all of those things. Uh, would you be able to tell us just a little bit more about that um, sort of theatrical aspect of the Baroque period? Sure. And can I, can I speak kind of directly from my recent experience? Yeah. Yes, yes, please, please do. do. All right. So the most obvious example of that is at a church called Santa Maria della Vittoria. And in that church, Bernini did the Cornaro Chapel. And in that chapel, he basically puts St. Teresa and an angel on a stage of clouds. And those clouds are sculpted of marble. And his special undercutting of his marble absolutely activates the fabric of St. Teresa's garment to the point where it almost feels like it's moving. To the right and to the left of this drama, up in a little, uh, what, what do you call it, like where people sit in a theater, there are the Cornaro family and they're watching this entire scene take place between the angel and St. Teresa. There is a light that illuminates the sculpture from above and that's a really important feature. So. Here's this drama taking place between these two characters. They're basically on a stage. And then Bernini pulls out every stop he can imagine. So surrounding this stage, all kinds of like columns, marble, different colors of marble. Uh, there are painted aspects to this. Um, he was really quite the dramatist. I often call him the Steven Spielberg of his time. I really do. Yeah, I think that's fitting for sure. It's just really, it becomes like, and the whole room becomes activated as a space where viewers can stand in it and basically feel like they're part of this drama that's going on. So uh, that's one thing that I did read about Bernini is, is that his, a lot of his sculptures are not just facing the viewer. The viewer is invited to walk around and from every angle there's another um, aspect of what he's done that, that will entertain the viewers. So he is, a, he is very dramatic. Yeah, very dramatic. The whole period was quite dramatic, I think. Um, and it makes you wonder as well what the context was that was driving that sort of theatrical nature of the work. Um, I know, I think the sort of Protestant Revolution was happening at the same time, or, or this was sort of a backlash mm -hmm. to that. Well, not necessarily. I don't like the word backlash, but um, <laughs> it is a, it is a, I guess it is a reaction or it's an answer from the Catholic Church in Rome to the rest of the world. You know, why Catholicism would be the one true, one true church. So it's interesting when Martin Luther, I think it was 1517, is that right? Um, nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg 
church doors. Um, and then, of course, Charles V's army sacked Rome in 1527. Um, the church was pretty much decimated in Rome. And this was part of a rebuilding effort. And it's interesting, out of Martin Luther's 95 um, theses, that he basically brought up against the church. Most of them were answered, except for a few, hmm. in, in the Catholic um, counter-reformation. Mm-hmm. So part of this is just to give viewers a more um, emotional and spiritual religion as opposed to one that was maybe previously a little bit more intellectual, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So these works were supposed to move people to become spiritual and become followers of Christ. So the only other little tidbit that I've read is is that uh, uh, Bernini said that his stimulation or his, he got his direction from observing people, whereas I guess the Renaissance, I'm way out of my league here, but the Renaissance was more trying to replicate Roman and Greek type works, but the Baroque, which he led, was more of a true life representation. Am I way off, Charles? I think in um, I think in classicism and in the Italian Renaissance, you do find sort of a combination. On one hand, they're looking for ways of of celebrating humans and celebrating the idea that humans are capable. Uh, before the Renaissance, you know, one could do nothing without the help of God, and you can see that in earlier David statues like by Donatello. Um, If you look at something like Michelangelo's high renaissance sculpture of the same subject of David, that that David's fully capable of taking on the world. So there's a change in attitudes. So there's that ideal. And then there's this tying to classical times, which they greatly admired. Uh, Let's face it, Florence wanted to build a new Athens, and I know I just shifted cities, but, (laughs) but, but that's what they wanted to do. On the other hand, they wanted to celebrate the individual human being. So you see in this time period uh, portraits by artists such as Piero della Francesca coming forward where they're painting very specific people So and trying to make them human. The Mona Lisa is another example that by Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci that probably the audience could more relate to. But, um, but Bernini's interesting because they, they are very, very specific people. And even when he, he sculpts the David, his version of the David, he puts his own self-portrait into that face <laughs> where he's grimacing into a mirror and he puts himself right in there. And uh, that's his portrait. It's interesting that you, you bring that up because we also have some works in the exhibit that feature sort of a celebratory look at certain families. Um, the Kiji family is just one example of this, but other families were... Um, almost even portraying themselves within um, a, a grander narrative. And so I, I don't know if you could tell us anything about that. I think there's no doubt that um, any kind of portraiture at that time was going to lend some authority and some historiosity to the family members. I mean, to have your portrait painted by an artist like Bernini. Bernini means that you're going to be probably forever immortalized to some degree. <laughs> and, and that's, in fact, what happened. So I don't know if that answers the question Yeah, or not, no, it definitely but, does. It you know, does. it's like, it's almost um, the, the look of the portrait, it, it, had to, it had to come off with a sense of authority, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Is there a level of justification within that, justifying a family's sort of wealth or status? Um, the Kiji family was related to one of the popes during this period who was a big patron of Bernini. Um, <laughs> and, and so there's a lot of this uh, portraiture, a lot of this demonstration of wealth, a play into that theatrical, basically purchasing and transforming a whole town just for their summer residence. Is there a justification nature that goes into that? A justification? Yeah, sort of like a divine right. Divine right. I'm, I'm just thinking about the mm -hmm. language a little bit here. I, I think, um, I don't know about divine right, but mm -hmm. boy, they're, they're certainly going to put their family into a position of history. I mean, let's face it, the Kiji family came out of Siena originally, and they gravitated towards Romans and basically settled in Rome and kind of took over as one of those powerful families in Rome. You know, if you read a little bit about their history, some places even describe them as banking mobsters. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, Early mafia. <laughs> so I think the art definitely elevates that status a little sure. bit. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I know Bernini is, is uh, described as a very um, strident, strong Catholic, but his works, a lot of his works have a very sensual um, aspect of them. Did did. Did he ever get in trouble with the Catholic Church as far as any of his output being offensive to the church? Not that I'm aware of. I okay. mean, Michelangelo actually got in more trouble. <laughs> so for his for his um, Sistine Chapel um, Last Judgment, you know, they had to actually paint little covers over <laughs> sensitive parts. Heard of that? <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting that he is described as a um, as a strong Catholic, but. Uh, one of his most famous sculptures is of his mistress. Uh, I can't pronounce her name, Constanza Bonarelli. And so he's very public about that. I mean, people knew this is this is her portrait. So it's uh, it it seems a little incongruous with the strong Catholicism. You know, it's funny. I talked a little bit about Saint Teresa in ecstasy um, at the at that uh, Coronaro Chapel and it's an extremely sensual work and um i can't say on air what like it often reminds people of but <laughs> it's very very sensual and uh it was it was fully accepted as a spiritual piece another thing i read was is that a lot of up until bernini's time a lot of the um, busts or sculptures of that of a human face were really done for funeral monuments and memorials and so forth and and Bernini was really breaking ground by bringing real people in their living uh, showing them in their living situation um, as a, a portrayal method so it's interesting not to shift gears too much but we are really interested um, in, in your travel experience just recently were you with students yes I was I had 16 Emory and Henry College students and they studied for a semester prior to going, it's overwhelming and it's just not enough. But um, were you just in just in one city? No, we we went to Rome and then Siena, Florence, Pompeii, back to Rome. Goodness, yeah, that's mm -hmm. a trip. Nice, nice. <laughs> Exhausting. Um, traveling is a really unique way to experience artwork, and it's very different than what we do at William King. Uh, our whole goal is to bring things here to Abingdon to this region. But it, it does change the context of work. So I wonder if you've seen that with students seeing things here at the McLaughlin Center, seeing things at William King or in museums, uh, versus seeing things in 
the space in which they were originally created. Is there a shift in the in the mindset of students when you're traveling? There's a lot of there's a lot of questions that sort of revolve around that. So these students were asked to go to William King and see this exhibit. Mm. So and they all had to write a little response to it. That was for many of them, interestingly enough, their first time they've ever been in an art museum. Mm. Mm -hmm. So they got to go to William King first. And the nice thing about William King is that you can pretty much have a very close to private relationship with the art. Whereas when you go to Europe, and I think they were a little <laughs> astounded by this, um, and you go into the, we went to the Borghese Gallery, mm -hmm. which of course was the original house of Cardinal Scipione, uh, but uh, we, we went to that house and it was, they, they let you in at 10 o'clock and you get out at 12 o'clock. I mean, you have a two hour time period yeah. okay. and everybody goes in at the same time and everybody leaves when they want to, but I think they were a little bit surprised at how many people you know, were in that European gallery, but the other thing they saw is they, they got to examine like not only whether it's in the country that it was created for mm -hmm. or whether it was in Abingdon, they got to examine whether things, how things function in the museum compared with how things functioned in situ and mm -hmm. the places that they were created for. Mm -hmm. So they saw Bernini's in the Chigi Chapel, for example, at Santa Maria del Popolo. Mm -hmm. They saw Bernini's, they, they saw the Baldacchino at St. Peter's Basilica. They saw the St. Peter's chair, you know. Yeah. And say, so they, they got to see things in situ, mm -hmm. on site, and they got to see things in museums, and they got to see things in houses, they got to see things in churches, and they got to see things in Abingdon, and compare the advantages and disadvantages of all of that, and write about it, too. I'd like to remind our visitors, listeners, that you are listening to Art Speak from William King Museum of Art in Abingdon, and our co-host today is Katie Edwards, and we're talking with Charles Goolsby, who is uh, art professor at in Henry, and we're just discussing his uh, recent trip to Italy. Uh, so did, was your tour uh, designed around a specific set of artists, or were you focusing on any particular aspect, or was it just a general exposure? Well, the course was initially conceived to be uh, a Renaissance course with a little bit of Baroque tacked onto the end, and I've been doing it for almost well, three decades now. So it's become a little scarier in that it has deconstructed into something more general. Mm. And, you know, we, we, we do things, I mean, when they go to the Vatican museums, they see everything from Mesopotamia to mm -hmm. Egypt to classical Greece to, you know, and I try to just make as many connections as I can. But, uh, Dave, I think to answer your question, it's probably lost some of that Renaissance focus. Mm -hmm. Even though that's their thickest book. <laughs> <laughs> well, how long did the Baroque period last? Um, I mean, was this a, a flash in the pan thing, or is it... Um... I think of it as a 17th century movement. And um, it, it um, you know, we talk about all of these movements like the Italian Renaissance, well, the rest of Europe had one too. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, <laughs> the, same thing's true. the same thing's true. We were talking about the Roman Baroque here in Bernini. Well, Dagona Rubens was a pretty good Baroque <laughs> artist. And he was in Northern Europe and so was Rembrandt. So mm -hmm. these are some pretty big household names. So I don't know if that helps or not. <laughs> 
So, Katie, uh, I know us getting to have this exhibit was um, was kind of a uh, unique journey, mm-hmm. and you were a big part of that. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, content of the exhibit and how we happened to uh, get that opportunity? So, the the exhibition at William King right now uh, features ten Bernini works, as well as about thirty five other works um, from all from the Palazzo Chigi. The Palazzo Kiji was the summer home of the Kiji family, who we've been speaking about. Um, and they did commission Bernini and some other artists to kind of come in, remodel, redecorate, um, do all the artwork, uh, redo basically the whole town, the gates to the town, the park, everything. Um, and so what we have is just a small selection from that uh, museum now. It's a museum now. And it was in the hands of the Kiji family, I think, until around the 1980s. Um, they turned it over to the town. They've retained all of their collection and have had some other donations as well over the past couple of decades. And it is sort of a museum now uh, to this Roman Baroque movement. What differs, I think, in the William King exhibit from the actual uh, Palazzo Chigi is just how much there is at the Palazzo Chigi. So we have examples of Bernini's work. We have examples of the portraiture there. Um, we have examples of, of many of the artists that were represented and a wide selection of paintings. But what we don't have is the whole space. And that's something that you get a little taste of in this exhibit. But I think maybe Charles students would have a better, a better way of describing what it's like to be inside of a space that is completely, completely manipulated and decorated by these Baroque artists. So we have things like an example of the tapestry of the Palazzo Chigi, but imagine a whole room filled mm-hmm. with this red tapestry. Right. Imagine a whole room covered in these leather wall hangings. And so we give you a little taste, but you'll have to, to dig into it a little bit more as you go. <laughs> we also have some really good resources when you come to the museum. So we have a gallery guide, which you can explore, uh, but we also have a date night packet, which has got some <laughs> additional elements. We have... Uh, food and wine recommendations. There's recipes in there. Um, We also have a film list, Spotify playlist, books to read, additional resources, all that kind of thing. And there's also a family guide uh, and lots of lots of programming surrounding that. Uh, That's great and uh, appreciate all you did to uh, make all that happen. So the uh, one of the things that fascinated me about Bernini was the fact that he he was hired by this family or and apparently that was something that was done a lot in in Europe was a town would lure an artist away from somewhere else and uh, and he would then become uh, someone responsible for redecorating or adding or whatever the town needed, either architecturally or art or whatever. Uh, you know, I just don't think of that today. I don't I don't <laughs> think that's a concept that that uh, you hear of uh, an artist becoming kind of a missionary to a town. Is, is, is there any program like that, Charles, or where you have artists in residence? I know colleges will. There are towns, and I, I can't think of any specifically off the top of my head, but they will hold um, competitions and invite artists. And so there, there are, I don't yeah. know if they transform towns like Bernini did. You have to keep in mind too that, like, you keep talking about Bernini as this like sole individual genius, which you know he was. But he had an entire productive studio of assistants that could really make this work. I mean, the magnitude of his output 
could not have happened if he was a lone genius just working by himself. There is just no way. So just remember, he had a production staff. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, how Bernini worked or what you see at the exhibit at William King that you think is a, uh, a good representation of, of, of what he was capable of. Well, okay, so there's the portrait of the Cardinal. Um, even though it was done by a different artist, it was done certainly in that time period in that style. There, one thing that really particularly stands out to me is the part of the exhibition that's dedicated to the triumph of the Baroque. And I think about this a whole lot. When you go to see these churches, you see these incredible vast ceilings that sort of like suck you into a vortex going straight up to heaven. And then the exhibit at William King has several smaller examples of this, and I think that is just phenomenal. I also would like to just say hats off to William King because they, the fact that this exhibit's in Abingdon is also a triumph. Thank you. <laughs> we appreciate that I so know, much. It's, it's only, I think, exhibiting in four or five places in the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's big, big cities. It's yeah, we're just one of Saint four. St. Petersburg or Tampa or somewhere. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a, it's not a small deal. It's a big deal. Yeah, a very big <laughs> deal, and it's only on um, exhibit until January sixteenth. So if you would like to come and experience a little bit of Rome uh, here in Abingdon, please do join us uh, before January 16th. Right. And don't plan it as a holiday treat because I just learned that the museum's going to be closed 23rd, 24th, 25th, 26th, and the 31st, 1st, and 2nd, I believe. Yes, so, yeah, we've got so, this long holiday weekend. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anything else, Charles, that... You think is unique about Bernini, or that that people should look for, or I know you said he had a lot of helpers. Did any of his helpers go on to become great artists in their own right, or no one as great as Bernini? <laughs> yes, <laughs> never, never outdo the master. <laughs> thanks, thanks to both of you for being here today, and. Um, Katie is, this is her kind of last broadcast with us right now because she's going to leave the museum for a while, with just a while, we hope. And uh, it's, uh, you're going out on top of the world because you've got two great exhibits up at the same time. You've got the Bernini and, well, the Circle Be Unbroken, which is um, dedicated to birth and death traditions. And I think that's an appropriate one because we're going to be mourning your departure, Katie. Thanks for all you've done for us, and thanks for listening. <laughs>